Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and today I'm very pleased to have as my guest Dr. Thorvalder Paulson from the uh, Albert University. He serves as an associate professor in their Department of Health Science and Technology. Welcome, Dr. Paulson. Thank you, Alan. Thanks a lot for having me on this podcast. It's a great honor. Well, today I'm really excited to talk about uh, an article that you and your colleagues have published in the November issue of PTJ. Your title is Changing the Narrative in Diagnosis and Management of Pain in the Sacroiliac or SI Joint Area. Yeah. I really look forward to uh, to talking about uh, your thinking on this issue. Let, let me start, uh, if I might, by asking you to talk a little bit about what motivated you and your colleagues to write this perspective at this time. I, I'm fortunate enough to have a broad network of colleagues, some of whom uh, I included in this work, and we all sort of have a similar background that is, we, we have a background within physiotherapy, and we have an everyday that consists of doing research alongside with having a bit of clinical work on the side, to varying degrees, of course. And this, of course, gives us the advantage of getting a good overview of the existing evidence, and which allows us also to embed this into our clinical work. But this also means that uh, we, ver we, are, we are very often asked to give second opinions on, pa on, on patients that have been through rehabilitation processes elsewhere and also to take on and assess people that have been in the system, if you, if you might, for, for a while because of a pain problem, in this case uh, a pain problem relating to the SIJ area. And part of this is, of course, like these people have often been seen by other healthcare professionals before, and it's and it seems to be a recurrent theme when you start asking them, "What have you been through in the past?" That that they have been informed of these movement dysfunctions that have then resulted in their pain problem. And then when you ask, "Well, oh, how has this been diagnosed?" They are often been told that that the that the clinician had assessed the movements of their pelvic girdle and on the basis of their assessment findings they found out that they had either a, a joint that was too loose or too stiff or unstable or whatever, causing it maybe to slip out of position, uh, etc. So this, this, this has caused a bit of a frustration and it, it, this is not something that's we just decided to write an article about all of a sudden. It's been something that we've been discussing amongst ourselves for a while because we we feel it's pretty frustrating because, uh, first of all, there's quite a lot of evidence that's been around for quite a few years now showing that the movements in the sacroiliac joint is actually very limited. But also there's emerging evidence and fairly new evidence showing from qualitative studies showing that informing patients about structural, how should we phrase this, structural deformities or fragility or something being unstable or slipping out of position, it doesn't necessarily facilitate recovery. On the contrary, it, it, it very often seems to sustain 
sustain the patient in their uh, uh, in their pain condition. So that was a long answer to a very short question, uh, but this was sort of our motivation to it. That's okay, because let's unpack several things that you mentioned in your answer. Mm. You, you, you yeah. basically described this, uh, what you referred to as a movement dysfunction paradigm. Mm. One of yeah. the things that struck me when I was reading your perspective is, I understand your frustration and that of your colleagues, but do you have any sense or is there any evidence that points to how prevalent this movement dysfunction paradigm is within our field globally? No, and this is actually the interesting thing because when we look at our article has actually been received very well on the social media and it's been distributed widely and it's been widely discussed, but it's been overwhelmingly positive. So it seemed, it might almost seem like this isn't an issue at all, that everybody regards this as a stable structure and we shouldn't be conveying messages regarding fragility and things being unstable and slipping out of place, etc. But we do know that assess, manual assessments of the sacroiliac joint or pelvic girdle movements, it's still taught at undergraduate level, at university level, at universities all around the world. So you, alone in the, in the group of authors, we have people representing several countries and we all agreed that where we have had our foot within the teaching uh, institutions, this is part of the curriculum. So even yeah. though we, we have all this knowledge from research, it's still being taught to uh, to our upcoming physiotherapists. It's a bit frustrating yeah. because it seems like you first need to learn that, that the sacroiliac joint or you have to learn about how to assess movements in the SIJ as an undergraduate student only to come out postgraduate to learn that it's likely useless uh, these methods are likely useless in the in the clinical setting so it might seem like a bit of a waste of time so but i do know this is this is practiced this is part of daily practice around the world at least in the countries where i'm familiar with well it is interesting if we're still teaching it, that is an indication that it's still fairly prevalent. Uh, yeah, yeah. Despite yeah. the evidence uh, that you you and your colleagues talk about in the article. So yeah, given that, yeah. why, why do you think the paradigm continues to be taught and used in the face of evidence uh, not supporting yeah. it? Yeah, well... Well, well, the quick answer would probably be, I don't know. I don't know why we would continue doing something that uh, at glance even would seem as being useless. The one thing is, of course, that uh, the fact that within our profession, and if you look at healthcare professionals as a whole, it's sort of embedded in us that we want to, of course, help people, but we want to be as thorough and specific as we can be. Uh, because then we can provide specific treatment or specific advice, advice which are based on our uh, specific findings. Yeah. Therefore, I think these are the tests that we are taught we, we have to use when we assess, if, if we have any uh, suspicion of the pain problem being from the SIJ, we, I think 
many people routinely use this in their assessment uh, routine. But very often then they might jump to the conclusion of associating the pain condition then with whatever uh, movement disp dysfunction they feel they're detecting with their manual testing. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think it, it, and it causes a bit of a confusion, I feel, that we do have a lot of useful tests that can help us assess the SIJ. A good example is uh, are the are the pain provocation tests that have been tested quite thoroughly and been in been described in detail in Mark Laslett's work. So it seems like it, it's we are very capable of by just using our hands and clinical reasoning skills. We 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 to uh, we can be fairly certain after assessing the patient uh, that the pain is arising from the SIJ region or it isn't arising from the SIJ region. The problem is that we, it, this leaves us with the fact that we don't really know why the pain is there. We just know that it stems from the sacroiliac joint structures. Yes. But well, then sometimes we... we take this giant leap to assuming that this is then related to a movement dysfunction. One of the things that I enjoyed in reading your perspective was you not only criticized the existing movement dysfunction paradigm, but, but you also began to talk about um, an alternative paradigm. Could you share a little bit with our listeners what you and your colleagues are offering as an alternative proposed paradigm that you think is a better alternative to the one that we've been discussing? Yeah, 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 and uh, and I think this is a very relevant point. First of all, we 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 would like to we advocate for moving away from using these explanatory models that base on uh, that base on uh, the assumption that movement dysfunction is there, since we cannot really detect movements or lack of movement or too much movement in the sacroiliac joint. So abandoning these explanatory models would be a very good start. But we would much rather want to stick to what we know. And what we do know is that the sacroiliac joint is an inherently stable structure. So there is very, very little movement available, even though you have pain in the area. And we also want people to acknowledge that because what we are then often asked, what do you then suggest that SIJ pain doesn't exist? This is not at all what we're suggesting, and indeed it does exist in many people. But here we just want to point out that it might be a result of a stimulation of primary nociceptive fibers in the region, for example, if you have an injury. And we do know that studies using radiofrequency denervation have shown, have been proven useful in reducing the pain and in some cases cases making it very tolerable for many patients. But very many often the pain doesn't go away entirely. So we what we want to advocate for is that we to a greater extent take on board the the fact that cognitive processes are very likely to play an important role in SIJ pain, just as we acknowledge that they probably play a very important role in every other pain condition. Where we have where we very much want clinicians to try to identify the thought processes uh, the patients have. So if, if we're talking about 
fear of movement, fear of loading the painful side because the pain might indicate an injury or the risk of causing a greater injury or uh, something along those lines. Um, so, so, so we would very much want to advocate for clinicians to take on board all the knowledge we have from pain science, but also all the knowledge we have from studies done on movements of the SIJ, and try to change their uh, uh, explanatory models so they better fit uh, what we actually do know, instead of guessing, uh, as we seem to be doing now when we're using movement dysfunction as a model for the explaining SIJ pain, which is an implausible uh, or uh, biomedically implausible explanatory model in, in our view. Yes, and, and you and your colleagues discussed that at some length in the perspective, and so I would encourage yeah. listeners to take a look at it because I think you, you, you handled it in a very um, useful and interesting way. Uh, in, in the article, you suggest that clinicians should be trying to address these helpful cognitive beliefs that patients might have yeah. regarding structural fragility based on, you know, the movement dysfunction uh, paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. In, in your view, what, what kinds of educational strategies do you recommend clinicians use and, and what do we know about their effectiveness? Well, that's, a, that's an excellent point because, first of all, we have to state and acknowledge that, uh, to my knowledge, there haven't been done any studies looking at how, educa how educational specific or general educational strategies, if they have an effect in managing uh, sacroiliac joint pain. But what we what we would find uh, very helpful uh, clinicians would start doing is to avoid planting seeds into the patient's minds regarding structural fragility, because we do know that we're talking about one of the human body's most staple structures, and we do know from all, from a lot of the qualitative stuff. And also, if we take, for example, Jenny Setchell's work from 2017, we we could see that. People that are in pain, in this case, it was it was back pain. We can see that they predominantly believe that the reason for the pain is because of faulty biomechanics of some sort. And then they were asked, well, where, where did you learn that from? They, it seems like in the majority of cases, this knowledge came from healthcare professionals. So one of the things we should stop educating our patients about is things being fragile and uh, brittle. And much rather, we should uh, try and get the patients to focus on how robust the area is. Yeah. Uh, but but with, with regards to whether such educational strategies do work, uh, we can we can take examples from other body areas like the knee. The knee. We do see the the GLAD project, which which actually is something that's initiated with a colleague of mine and a newly appointed professor, Søren Sko, where they've developed this rehabilitation program where they take people with knee OA, they educate them about what, what's happening in the knee when it gets worn out, what, what are the potential consequences and benefits of loading the knee and exercising, and trying to help them make sense of their pain to some extent. 
And then they build on top of that an exercise program where they gradually become exposed to increased load on the painful structure. Now, I think this is a very uh, sensible way of integrating what we know from pain science into, into clinical practice. Uh, another good example would be the, the cognitive functional therapy approach, if you want to call that approach, the, the, the work done by Peter O'Sullivan and his group, where they, where they try to address unhelpful thought processes related to the pain problem, and then developing an exercise program or a strategy where, where the patient is gradually exposed to uh, becoming more and more to, to, the, to the painful activities, and in that sense, building up tolerance to the to the load in to load in the area. I would I would yeah. think, but, but, but reducing it to a couple of few bullets like this, of course, it's a very reductionistic approach because this takes a lot of skills and a lot of knowledge of how the pain system works, and of course, a lot of skills in conveying these messages in an understandable way. Because we have to do, we have to remember that the people that have to use these messages, these are these are people that are uh, these are laymen. They they don't necessarily have the same insight into how the body works. So that that's tricky, and I admit that. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, one of the take-home messages I hear for clinicians is, first of all, do no harm. Let's stop exactly. edu educating yeah. the wrong message. Uh, yeah. But I would agree with you. It's very complex in terms of how to effectively educate our patients with the right message. And fortunately, yeah. there's a lot of science being done in, in the field of behavior change and education that might be helpful. Exactly. And I'm glad you mentioned Peter O'Sullivan's work because uh, he wrote a nice perspective in our special issue uh, in the right. past year yeah. on pain, and I think it's uh, it's something our listeners might want to take a look at. Um, yeah, they might I think that would be useful. Yeah, I, I would definitely think that. And uh, yeah, and I think you're spot on by saying that. First of all, we should make sure that we're not we're not placing ourselves as clinicians in the way of recovery, because. We have to make sure that whatever we do and whatever we say is helpful for the recovery process. But very often, we ha or we have a tendency to, and I'm talking in general within musculoskeletal pain, sometimes we have a tendency to overcomplicate things, and we overcomplicate them often on the basis of diagnostic tests, which very often lack validity and uh, specificity. So a lot of the stuff we get our patients to do exercises, etc., are based on assumptions that might not necessarily be uh, helping or facilitating recovery. Well, I have to say, as someone who's been in the field for a long time, it's certainly not used, uh, unique to the musculoskeletal um, yeah, area yeah, yeah. of physical yeah. therapy. It's, it's, a, no. it's a universal problem. But before yeah. closing, I want to mention to our listeners that um, those who are interested if you take a look at the Pain Research Forum, which is put on by the International Association for the Study of Pain, in November they're going to be um, hosting Dr. Paulson's uh, perspective, so it'll be widely available to to anyone who might be interested. And and, and again, let me let me close by saying I really enjoyed.
the opportunity to talk to you about your work and uh, appreciate your publishing it in PTJ. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure and an honor. 